0: This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 376, A Conversation with Peter David. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 376. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Today is our episode where we sit down to speak with Peter David, acclaimed writer of Pretty much everything in the last thirty years. Um, we had a, a chance to speak with Peter for about half an hour about a ver- variety of different topics. Specifically, we talked. We started off talking about Spider Man twenty ninety nine. Um, we talked about some, you know, what's going to be coming up in that book, and then we did a little bit of listener questions that were submitted from the Marvel Masterworks forum. Now, uh, we didn't have a, a, so a huge amount of time to speak with. Uh, Peter today but we really appreciate the time he took out of his day to speak with us Um, so here, I want to thank the following um, contributors uh, who submitted questions that I used I didn't always actually have a chance to list their name in the episode but um, you know I just want to make sure I give the shout outs where shout outs are necessary. So, thank you to Iraq Walker, uh, to INTP, to Rack-no-man, um INTP again, and Green Meerkat, uh, Faust33, um, I think Uklam, Uk, 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 Ukla the Mach. Um, uh, let's see, who else do we have a chance to talk to or uh, get a question from? Uh, Jester59388. Uh, Hogan, Strider Tag, Muldoon, and Have Monkeys. Thank you so much for your questions. Um, in half an hour, we didn't have a chance to go over everything. There was an amazing amount of stuff we didn't have a chance to touch on, but we did talk about the Hulk, again, Spider-Man 2099, um, and a variety of other topics. Uh, we talked about the, the Sin Eater storyline, uh, also the follow-up to Sin Eater. More about the follow-up, actually, than the, than the main storyline, just as we were wrapping up. But uh, I hope you're really going to enjoy this episode. Uh, again, it was just amazing to be able to actually talk to Peter David Uh, unfortunately there was a lot of stones left unturned maybe in the future I can get him back on the show uh, so we didn't have a good We didn't really get a chance to talk about Young Justice, um, Aquaman, or there was a little bit of talk about an Aquaman miniseries that he did years ago. Uh, We didn't get a chance to talk about X-Factor. You'd think that there's these massive massive things. How do you not talk about them? Well, when you look at uh, a resume like Peter David's, it's very easy to miss something because he's written so much and so much of it is worth talking about. I literally could sit and talk and listen to him and just go through his entire resume for over, you know... A day, probably, if not more. I mean, he's just he's got so much on his resume and so much of this high quality. Anyways, let's jump right into the episode. Again, this has been episode 376. It's our conversation with Peter David. If you'd like to email me, you can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, review and rate us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to us on iTunes and listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, and um, enjoy the episode. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for joining uh, Comic Shenanigans today, Peter. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Um, so, first of all, I want to talk to you about uh, Spider-Man 2099. Um, I'm a go big, right ahead. I'm a big fan of that book right now. It's, it's been fantastic. And you and Will have been putting together amazing work. Um, Thank you. Uh, what? Uh, when you first knew that you were going to kind of do this newest relaunch, um, what? What direction? Like, what kind of made you decide to go in a different direction with Miguel?
1: It stemmed from the fact that he'd be, he had been reintroduced into the Marvel Universe and set in present day. I could have, I suppose, just completely ignored that and taken him immediately back to uh, 2099 and set all his adventures then. But readers seem very intrigued by the prospects of him dealing with modern day. Uh, him being very much out of his element, so I decided to keep him in modern day with having occasional forays into 2099 to keep the long-time readers happy.
0: Now, the, uh, the current volume kind of moved away from the previous volume that had involved uh, Liz Allen and that major subplot. Yes. Do you plan to go back to Liz Allen at some point?
1: Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, I, I will be exploring their attempts to build their own kind of, uh, prison, you know, uh, their own version of Abu Ghraib. Um, and that is something I'm going to get back to. It's not going to be immediate, but I like, will be getting back to that.
0: When you launched the newest volume, you did it definitely with a big bang with, uh, you know, the, at the, at the time, supposed death of Tempest, uh, what kind of motivated that decision to kind of make, push Miguel into a, a darker, uh, territory, at least for the first arc?
1: Well, that was exactly why, to push him into darker territory. I mean, the concept that he had basically decided that he didn't need to be Spider-Man anymore seemed to me to be kind of rife with dramatic possibility, because obviously he's going to become Spider-Man again, because the book is called Spider-Man 2099, not The Incredible Adventures of Miguel (laughs) O'Hara. So... There had to be some element that had to motivate him into that. And so I kind of went with the traditional, oh, my God, they killed my girlfriend. These bastards must die. Um, I did wind up avoiding the, the, the cliche of she's dead. Um, and I do indeed have, you know, greater plans for Tempest in the grand scheme of spider-man's life so i was basically able to have both ways that uh the supposed death of tempest triggered his transformation back into spider-man but she will be back to affect his life
0: what was your inspiration for the tempest character originally like she definitely feels like a very vibrant personality very fully fleshed out almost immediately upon her appearance what kind of led to her creation
1: I just came up with someone who I thought would be an interesting match for Miguel. Someone who was not immediately enamored of him. Somebody who had her own problems, who was convinced that she was going to die because doctors had all said she was going to die. Someone who absolutely did not give a damn about life because she felt that she was going to be on her way to checking out. I thought that that would be an interesting um, situation to put Miguel into. That He was confronted with this person who didn't care about anything that was going to be happening to her anymore and that he would find he would be determined to try and find some way to reinvest an interest in life in her.
0: Now, you've been using the uh, the newest version of the Captain America 2099 that you introduced in the Secret Wars miniseries. Uh, you seem yeah. to be having a lot of fun writing the character, and she definitely feels you know a very intriguing uh, spin on the classic kind of Captain America-ish premise. How did you kind right. of decide to come up with this multiple personality type of character?
1: Well, I mean, the concept of having Avengers 2099 was something that was dictated by Marvel. They wanted me to write essentially, Avengers 2099, and I was given total carte blanche to create the characters that I saw fit, um, I decided to have a female Captain America because we really had not had to any great degree a female Captain America. I thought having the concept that she had a, a double identity that was unbeknownst to her would be just kind of interesting. I mean, I do like I do like Secret identities. They seem to be falling out of vogue for a lot of uh, heroes these days, and uh, I thought that it would be kind of interesting to have Captain America be someone who did not know that she was Captain America, that Cap knows about her double identity, but she doesn't. Um, also, the fact is that I decided to give Captain America this massive bill for a woman. Uh, originally, Will sent in character sketches of her and she was normally proportioned, and I said, "Well, now wait a minute. When Steve Rogers underwent the Super Soldier formula, he went from being a relatively skinny guy to this massively built guy. And why we've never, if we're going to have Captain America female be Super Soldier, we should follow the exact same pattern. So by giving her a dual identity, who didn't know about." Um, for Captain America's side enabled me to have it both ways, that she was a normally proportioned woman, except part of her power is that she was able to bulk up into this weightlifter. And I have to admit, I was really kind of fascinated by the fan reaction to Captain America when the first sketches were released, because here was this bulked up Captain America. I mean, Will did a terrific job of producing her. And I found that the fan reaction split Break down gender lines all the fanboys said oh my god she looks so ugly she's so bulky I mean, she looks terrible and all the fan girls said i love this character you know the, i mean all the women just totally responded to the concept of a bulk you know a muscle-bound woman they thought she looks fantastic <laughs> and the fanboys are going no oh, no she looks too bulky she should look like you know a classic, a classic standard beauty and you know I, I, I thought that was hilarious I certainly was not expecting it to bend in those
0: directions when you first used her in that miniseries did you kind of know that you were definitely going to kind of bring her into the main continuity and, and have her interacting with Miguel
1: absolutely
0: not. no I,
1: I didn't have a uh any plans to to bring her over, Um, but when I went back, when I started Spidey 2099 again, I thought, you know what, I should really bring in at least some of the Avengers 2099 characters, because I had so much fun creating them, and they could have some potentially interesting ramifications on Miguel's life, so that's where she came from.
0: Now the current arc, we're kind of you're, you've thrown Miguel back into the future. Um, yep. Now is is this going to just be uh, actually? You know, I realize as I'm asking the question, it's a total spoiler question, so there's almost no point in asking it. Uh, so let me rephrase: um, How is this book? We've just seen solicits come out today that there's going to be a civil war 2 tie in for Spider-Man 2099. Uh, how yep, can probably. you how can you tease how that'll work?
1: Um... It's going to be Civil War 2099, which means it's going to be taking place in 2099. It um, we will be picking up from 2099 as it's currently standing in the world that Miguel is exploring now. I mean, I don't know which issues come out, so I don't know how far you've read. Uh,
0: I think the most recent issue, as of uh, today's recording, is issue 10, which uh, I guess started the most recent arc with him being in the future, and it kind of Got it. we just jumped into it as the issue started.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's going to be the future that we're going to be exploring for a few issues.
0: Now, what is it like to, you know, kind of be um, the architect of a, kind of a new 2099? Obviously, you're one of the original architects of that universe, yeah. and so kind of rebuilding it and restructuring it uh, now, what is it like, and is it fun to do? Oh, yeah,
1: it's very entertaining. I mean, basically, I'm, I'm recreating the world that I was part of when it was first created, except I don't have to go, you know, I don't have to deal with, like, Three or four other writers and coordinate everything. It's all you know coming out of me, which I have to admit is kind of entertaining.
0: What's your collaboration process like with Will?
1: I write the, I write the scripts and he draws them. <laughs> I mean, you know. As a writer, you can't really ask for more than that. I mean, Will does a tremendous job of, of following the scripts and, and imbuing them with his own stylistic twists and visuals. And you know, um, I mean, I've learned to trust him completely in terms of where his instincts take him uh, from a visual point of view.
0: One question I like to ask most of my guests on the show is that um, when you're at conventions, what's what's the most common thing that you're asked to sign?
1: That I'm asked to sign. Spider-Man 2099 number one the original which of course makes sense because they made over a million copies of that thing <laughs> so there's more copies of that floating around than any other thing that I've ever written
0: what's the uh, the oddest thing that you've been asked to sign or something that was rarer maybe
1: um, what's rarer uh, my adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac that occasionally very very once in every ten conventions somebody comes up to with a copy of that which I loved doing. I loved. I loved adapting serial. Kyle Baker did an amazing job on the pencils of
0: that. Actually, I want to ask you a question about um, novelizations. Actually, this was a listener question. Um sure. When you used to, when you were working on the Marvel movie novelizations, generally speaking, what was your kind of your lead time uh, when you were actually putting those together? Because usually the novelizations would come out just about when the movie hit. So, how far in advance were you actually you know writing the book?
1: Not very. Not very. A couple of months at most. If if a movie was going to be coming out in May, I might have a script by January or February. That's one of the reasons that they liked hiring me, because they could wait until almost the last minute to get me a finalized script, and I could bang out the uh, adaptation pretty damn quickly.
0: Which adaptation would you say you're most proud of, or you thought worked out the best?
1: Most proud of? Let's see. Um... That's, it's really hard to say, I mean, I take pride in all of them to some degree. I mean, there are some that particularly stand out i love I love doing the Rock in here because i because of the additional things that I brought to it, and maybe believe it or not the one I'm, I may be proud of is the return of swamp thing because <laughs> I read you know when I was reading that initial script, I was just staggered by how utterly awful it was and <laughs> I, I thought, you know, i got to do one of two things. I've got to just, you know, do a straight up, he said, she said, novelization of it and not have my name on it because I don't want to be associated with it. Or I have to rewrite this thing. And I wound up rewriting it. I made massive changes. I mean, I, I left out scenes I didn't like. I changed scenes to make them better. I completely rewrote the ending. I looked at it straight from an issue, Alan Moore's swamp thing. I mean, I just totally <laughs> redid it. Um, I did way more than I should have, and it is my great good luck that Michael Usland, who was the producer of the film, read my novelization, and his response was, we should have this, and, you know, <laughs> which, I was, which I was extremely flattered by, because he could have come back and said, this is not our movie, have him do a rewrite, in which he goes back and does our movie, because that's what he was freaking hired to he could have easily done that and I would have had absolutely no defense but fortunately enough he didn't do that
0: wow that is high praise
1: well yeah I mean basically what happened was um, after the movie came out DC was doing a panel at the New York Comic Con and they were asked about the return of Swamp Thing movie, and the response was I think it was Bob Greenberger who said skip the movie read the book
0: <laughs> that's incredible uh, actually, speaking of uh, novels in general, uh, we had a listener question, which was: um, When writing the uh, the Hulk uh, the Hulk novel, now I'm blanking on the name. I think it's uh, that Savage Beast or something. What
1: some, Savage Beast? Yeah, what
0: was Savage Beast was that meant to tie into the comics at the time, or was it originally meant to be a comic itself?
1: Basically, I had Betty Banner get pregnant in the comic books. And after I had her get pregnant, and I established she was pregnant, I was overruled by upper management, um, a Marvel editorial, who stated that Bruce Banner would never become a father. Of course, now the Hulk has, one three kids running around? <laughs> you yeah. know, aside from that, they said, the is never going to be a father. And I had a whole major storyline planned, which I was then not going to be able to do. So I wound up, so I basically, Uh said, fine, but if she's going to lose the baby, I'm not going to write the issue. So as I recall, Bob Harris came in and wrote one issue in which she lost the baby. Um, When I wound up doing What Savage Beast, I decided to take the storyline I wanted to do in The Incredible Hulk comic book and do it in the novel. There was no reason I couldn't. The The books were not canonical. So I could do whatever the hell I wanted in the books, and so that's where the plot of One Savage Beast came. It was my unused storyline, uh, somewhat changed and updated. But my unused—it it was my unused storyline for the, uh, the original uh, uh, Betty Banner having a child story.
0: Okay. Now, if you, I had, I, as you can imagine, a lot of listeners had questions about the Hulk uh, run because. You were on it for a very long time, and it was a very well-regarded uh, run. Uh, yes. One particular question was, uh, "What were your intentions with the leader after his seeming death in Hulk 400?"
1: Um, didn't I? Did I bring him back? Uh I,
0: thought I brought the I, thought I, I brought the leader back, didn't I? I know he came back later. I didn't think it was originally by you. Uh,
1: no, 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 he did. Uh, I, I I brought him back later on, and then I didn't think I got him. that's right. Then he got eat by polar bear. Oh yeah <laughs> Yeah I remember So that was my intention I pulled it back And then had him Get even by a polar bear At the end <laughs>
0: um, When you were doing The Ghost of the Future Storyline um, There was a, oh, a right. Pardon me?
1: I said, geez, I mean, you're asking about
0: stuff that 20 years ago, but okay. I know, I, I know it's difficult because, yeah, as you can, you've written, you've written everything and anything, and um, people, generally speaking, like a lot of it, so they have a lot of questions about it and they want right. to ask about it. Uh, so I, obviously, we, we know that it's been a long time, so don't expect your memory to be perfect on all these things. Okay. Um, when you're writing Ghosts of the Future, um, the listener question was basically that there was a one shot at the time that was connected, but. It was not actually written by you, and if there was any particular reason why that wasn't written by you, and I can imagine that might be a tough one to answer.
1: I don't even remember it. I have no recollection of it. There was a separate one-shot?
0: Apparently. NSA,
1: so I don't remember it at all. Okay. Um, I don't remember who wrote it. I don't remember what happened in it. I got nothing.
0: It's okay. Sorry. Um, a question about uh, if Heroes Reborn hadn't occurred and taken Banner out of the equation where might the Hulk book have gone at that time?
1: If, if oh um, what would I have done if, we, if I had not lost wait if, when, when we did the um, when we did the storyline where we had the characters wind up in a pocket universe
0: yeah, if that, if, that hadn't, if that hadn't have happened and kind of taken the banner aspect out, uh, the listener just wants to know, have any idea where you think the b- book might have gone if that hadn't been prompted?
1: Do I remember what storylines I would have done in a, story, in a comic book that I wrote 20 years ago if <laughs> it, something had not happened? No, I have no recollection whatsoever. Okay, I, I, I can tell you this. People are always asking me if I had not left the Hulk when I did. What storylines would I have done afterward? And my response to that is always, read my last issue, because all the storylines that I would have done were in that last issue, either shown or mentioned. So that last issue had all the stories that I would have wound up doing with the Hulk that would have taken me through an issue 500. And issue 500 was, as far as I was concerned, going to my last issue. I figured if I was going to leave at any point, let it be in a nice round number
0: like that. Actually, that brings up a, a comment I've always wanted to make. That, that that last issue of The Hulk, I actually always was a huge fan of it. It had a, a great sentimentality and wistfulness to it. Um, Thank you. What was it like kind of crafting that issue as, as your last one? Like, was it hard to say goodbye?
1: Well, I, I, it was hard to say goodbye, yes, but he's Marvel's character. I never really lost sight of the fact that he was Marvel's character. Um... You know the, the story, I just made the story as, as, as good as I could. I mean, the thing is, I wrote that story unlike any other story that I've ever written, which is that what I wrote, all I wrote was Bruce's narrative. I mean, all the dialogue that's in that issue, that was the narrative of the story. I did not describe how the artist should tell the story visually at all. I left that entirely up to Hubert. You know, I, I said to him, if you want to have this, if you want to actually show the things that Bruce is talking about, feel free to show the things he's talking about. If you want to have it be 20 pages of Rick Jones sitting in front of a fireplace just talking, I can make that work. Tell it visually however you want to tell it. The only, the only point at which I visually specified what happened was the opening in which I described the opening page and the closing page where his daughter comes running up to him and how he's sitting there and the fire is, is slowly going out and we see the beginnings of the objects that would wind up in his uh, trophy room in Future Imperfect. Those were the only things that I described visually. The rest was very simply Rick Jones sitting there and talking to the Unseen Reporter.
0: Uh, I have a few other listener questions. If we can run through them quickly for you, um, but yeah, no, I, I love that issue. So um, that's always like been, a, a, I just, I, I'm a huge fan of sentimentality in comics when it, it's done well, and you've, you've routinely done it extremely well. But that issue in particular, like I remember reading mm-hmm. that and be like, like if that was the last issue of the Hulk I ever read, that'd be fine. Like that was, right. it, was it was kind of pitch perfect in a lot of ways. Thank you. Uh, and you're you're right that um Hubert really knocked that one out of the park like it, uh, Absolutely. it like the it was very um it it just it felt like I was it felt very um i had a great sense of cinematography if that makes any sense mm-hmm. like just yeah. the pacing of it all anyway um when you were working on the Hulk you had some amazing collaborators um can you give us any insights into any of the if there was um any particular Cool kind of behind the scenes stories of those collaborations, or was it just simply I, I wrote a great story and they did great art?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, my probably my favorite collaborator was George Perez, who we did Future and Perfect together because George is just freaking amazing. I mean, there are a few books that are one hundred percent what I would want them to be, and Future Imperfect was definitely one. Um, I love working with George. Um, I with I work with Dale Keown, Dale. But Dale was a wonderful artist to work for. My understanding is that Dale only drew when his uh, music career wasn't going so well, so that he would draw in order to like, you know, earn money. But, um, you know, Dale was, was just tremendously exciting. And uh, I mean, he was the one who visually conceived the merge Hulk, which he did perfectly. Because what I said to him was, I want you to give me the Hulk's body, but Bruce Banner's face. And that's exactly what he gave me. And the Hulk was so freaking weird um, with Bruce Banner's face. I thought that, that I thought he did absolutely perfect. Um, it, it was you know you know it was great working with Todd McFarlane. I mean, he was a very young artist who was really just still learning the fundamentals of storytelling. I mean, the fact of the matter is is that the editor had wanted to put him on another book and the writer did not want him on the book because he was extremely underwhelmed by Todd's artwork up to that point. And uh, I looked at Todd's art and I said, no, I think, I think this has that potential. Fine, let's, let's have him on The Incredible Hulk. And, you know, and... Uh, and I just think he really rose to that potential. And I tried to give Todd stories that he wanted to do, like he really wanted to throw Wolverine. So I managed to work out a thing with the X-Men office, who at the time had a moratorium on, on Wolverine, uh, guest-starring in other books, but they gave us the okay to do it.
0: It's hard to believe there was ever a time when there was a moratorium on Wolverine showing up in other books.
1: Yes, no, they were trying to be very restrictive, and I bent over backwards to have the story tie in with the storyline that they were doing.
0: Uh, I have a listener question here. Would you ever consider doing a, a Doc Samson series, limited series, or special?
1: Well, considering he's dead, it's kind of problematic, but sure.
0: <laughs> well, it could be a flashback anyway, story.
1: I recall, as I recall, I think I did do a Doc Samson limited series, didn't I? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I did. It was, yeah, uh, with Doc Samson, and I think the beats was in it.
0: Okay, that does, that, that does sound familiar. Yeah, I see. Um, a, a listener asks, uh, who now holds the rights to Soul Searchers, and is there any chance of collections coming back to print?
1: Uh, Richard Howell and I own the rights to it, and as uh, for a collection. I'd love to see them ask Richard about it.
0: Fair enough. Um, do, do, I'm sure you get asked this frequently. Do you have any plans to continue Fallen Angel?
1: Yes. Yes, I've been working with uh, Chris Ryle and we will be doing more Fallen Angel. Uh,
0: what issue or story arc that you've written are you most proud of in retrospect? I'm
1: um, very proud of the Atlantis Chronicles. It was a seven-issue series I did for DC. They steadfastly refused to collect for 20-some years. Um, but, I, I, you, know, which I, you know, I have some hope now because the opposite will be coming out, so you never know. Um, very proud of my run on The Hulk, obviously. Um, I mean, to some degree I'm proud of everything that I did I mean, you know If I think which child do you like best It's really hard to just pick, you know, pick and choose
0: Which, which, um, which of your, I guess I mean, obviously you've written so much But which, which work do you think feels the most intensely personal?
1: Everything. I mean, it's going to sound like a ripoff, you know. But everything I write is intensely personal. Everything I write is drawn from some way shape or form from the inner aspects of you know me, for want of a better term. So it, you know, I mean, I mean. You know, the Hulk reflects personal aspects of me. Madrox represents personal aspects of me. Miguel O'Hara represents personal aspects of me. If I'm writing something
0: that does not reflect on me personally in some way, shape, or form, I'm not doing it right. What was it about Layla Miller that really connected with you? Because she was such a extremely well fleshed out character, the way you presented her. Thank you. But what was it about her that was so much fun for you to write? Because it it always felt she's like she a you're... young girl. Yeah,
1: she's a young girl. I have four daughters. I generally write better when I have a character who's female, um, I, I somehow connect to them. And when I started on Young Justice, the crew was uh, Robin, uh, Robin Impulse and Superboy. And the first few stories I did were okay, but the book did not really come together until I introduced the females into the book and then all of a sudden it seemed to take life. Well, that's what happens when you raise four daughters. <laughs> you, know, you tend to be able to see things very easily from the female point of view. Let's, let's let's wrap this up because we've
0: been on the phone for about half an hour okay uh, I guess the last thing I want to ask um, yeah. is uh, we, it's so hard to pick a, a last question uh, I guess what I want to okay. ask is um, when you wrote the, the Sin Eater storyline for Spider-Man uh, yeah. and then you came back and did the return of the Sin Eater uh, what, right. what was what was your inspiration for the, the kind of the concluding chapter for Stan Carter because it's it's heartbreaking to read um, how he kind of goes down, but like he kind of got one over on the senator when it was all said and done. H- yeah, what was it like crafting that story?
1: Well, I mean, I I thought, you know, I I saw what Spider Man did to him in his in the, in the last issue of the original four parter, and I thought to myself, we've never really done a follow up to what happens after a hero beats the living crap out of a villain. Because these are comic books, usually the villain gets up afterward and dust himself off. And the thing is, if you are not invulnerable and you take the kind of beating from an outraged, super strong character like Spider Man that Stan Carter sustained, you're not going to be able to just get up and go back to normal. And I and I actually consulted with a doctor to find out all the damages that such a beating could have. Instituted. And I was kind of shocked by the gravity of what could happen by getting the crap kicked out of you by Spider-Man. Um, but I put it all in there: uh, Stan's stammer, his inability to walk—I mean, all that stuff was right out of you know the stuff that the doctor told me would happen if an enraged superhero pounded the living crap out of you. And I thought that it would be interesting to put Spider-Man into that dynamic. And having both of them have to deal with the outcome of what happened as a result of the development of the senator, I thought that it would be interesting to give you know further background to the senator. And ultimately, Stan, you know, Stan Carter died by a method that in more recent years has actually um, you know come to be known as as death by suicide, you know, suicide by cop, where people you know. It's, you know, back when I did it, it was really not something that was known or talked about. But in later years, it's happened where people want the cops to kill them, and they put themselves into situations where the cops have no choice but to open fire on them. And that was the way that Stan Carter chose to die, because he thought it was the one way that he could take down the city And his attitude was, now I'm free of him, which, you know, he was.
0: Was there any pushback from editorial on, on that conclusion?
1: none whatsoever
0: because it's obviously I mean Mar-
1: Marvel has been traditionally extremely supportive of the ideas and concepts that I come up with we've had the maybe one or two dust ups in the 30 some years that I've been working for for them um, so, you know, uh, they, they, they are literally so few and far between that I can count them on the fingers of one hand. And what's interesting is that usually in those instances where I protested, eventually I turned out to be right. As editorial regimes changed, they wound up doing stuff that's what I wanted to do.
0: And my last question, only because it dovetails with that, uh, with this storyline, okay. what was it like working with Salvusema?
1: Sema? With Oh, that was fantastic. That was a great time. Absolutely great. I mean, I've been extremely lucky. I've worked with pretty much all of the people, with the exception of like Dan Kirby. I have worked with all of the artists that I grew up reading. I mean, you know, I mean, it's. it's I mean, I remember when I was doing this one issue of Peter Parker, and I and it was a, a series of flashbacks and that kind of thing, and for the wraparound chapter, the editor, Jim Allison, told me that it was going to be John P. Summa doing the pencils and John Romita Sr. doing the inks. And it's like, just, you know, I've managed it all. I've done it all. I mean, I've worked for Kurt Swan. I've worked with, I worked, that's, I worked with Steve Ditko. I mean, for God's sake, you know, I, I worked with Herb Trimpey for God's sake. Um, all, all of the great ones. So that's that's been one of the most fantastic aspects of of doing what I do, that I've had the opportunity on various occasions to work with the guys whose work I grew up reading. It's been it's been tremendous. I've been tremendously blessed.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for uh, for talking with us today. We really appreciate it.
1: No problem. My editor never called, so that worked out. <laughs> okay, okay. Thank you so much. I'll to you later. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.